The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st, sanitarymagazine.com. Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Also brought to you by Rickert and Beagle Books. Rickert and Beagle Books is a new, used, and rare bookstore located in Dormont, PA, specializing in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and weird nonfiction. Visit them on the web at rickertandbeaglebooks.com. midnight, Audrey crawled across the bedroom floor. I couldn't see her at first, but the scratching of fingernails along the carpet as she dragged herself was enough. Next to me on the mattress, Daniel snored in his usual rhythm. I inspected his hulking figure in the darkness and prayed for him to awaken. 
but he turned toward the window, still dozing. For five years, he'd slept through her nocturnal cameos. My gaze returned to the floor. Audrey had reached the edge of the rug. As long as I watched her, she never moved nearer. But if I closed or averted my eyes for a moment, she'd drift a few inches closer to the bed. I asked her what she wanted, but she never answered. We stared at each other until sunrise. Then she heaved her body to the doorway and disappeared down the hall. When Daniel's alarm clock roused him from bed, I was already hunched over the toilet. Is there anything I can do? He stood at the threshold of the bathroom, tightening his tie. I shook my head and wiped the sweat from my cheeks. Daniel smiled. I sometimes think you got pregnant so you could quit work and stay in bed all day. I retched and thought, if Audrey permitted me a night's sleep, I wouldn't have lost my last three jobs. I can get your lunch ready for you, I said. You need to rest, he said. And I think I can manage to make a sandwich on my own. Daniel started for the kitchen, but his steps faltered halfway there. Kaylee, I asked you before to stop rearranging the furniture. The lifting's not safe for the baby. I peered into the hallway. I haven't moved anything. His calloused fingertips traced the scratch marks on the hardwood floor. You don't need to lie. Just don't hurt yourself. I'm sorry, I said. It won't happen again. After another hour of searing nausea, I retreated to the bedroom where my toes straightened the tassels on the rug. Like notches in a tree measuring a child's growth, fringe helped me gauge Audrey's progress each night. She hadn't made it past the tassels yet, and I hoped she never would. Alone until late afternoon, I rested on the couch in the living room. While the daytime protected me from Audrey, I couldn't sleep in bed. Fingernails clawed at the hardwood and carpet, even when she wasn't there. At around three, the phone rang and jolted me from my nap. It was the real estate agent. That house on 2nd Street is back on the market, she said. The family decided to sell after all. Would you like to enter a bid? I rubbed my face and yawned. We're not looking for a place anymore. Mrs. Cook, I'm sure if we tried again, we could find your dream home. Not interested, I said and turned off the phone. After Audrey's debut, I told Daniel I wanted to move. I never said why, and he never asked. Maybe she wouldn't follow, I reasoned to myself. Yet the closing on every house we attempted to buy would falter in the final stage. The owners changed their minds, or the bank refused a loan for which we qualified. Not until a historic tutor burned to the ground in one of the hottest recorded fires in the history of our little town did I acquiesce to Audrey and agree to stay. Again, Daniel didn't ask why, and I didn't tell him. He arrived home around six. We ate dinner, he showered, I washed dishes. He read the newspaper, I vomited in the sink. I thought morning sickness was supposed to be in the morning, Daniel said as he ambled into the kitchen and wrapped his arms around me. Most of the time it is. I wiped my mouth and looked past the red and white curtains. 
was dark now. Audrey was on her way. I dangled my legs over the side of the mattress. Can we please leave the light on tonight? Baby, it's like I said before. Daniel kicked his slippers to the floor. I can't sleep when it's bright. The lamp dimmed, and within a minute, he started to snore. Audrey crawled on her stomach. She never stood or walked upright. I wondered if death rendered the legs lame, or if something else happened to her. Whatever the reason, on most nights, she could barely raise her head. If not for those cerulean eyes flitting back and forth, the body might have been a displaced corpse hunting for a morgue. Daniel rolled toward me. I leapt over him and smacked the bedside light. In an instant, the room returned to life. He grabbed me by my wrist. What's wrong? I searched the floor. Audrey was gone. Nothing, I said. You've got to stop this, Kaylee. He kissed my forehead. I need to sleep. Plunged once again into darkness, I waited. She lingered in the room. Audrey was a petite thing, five feet tall and no more than 90 pounds. I might not see her, but she could hide. Under the dresser, perhaps, or along the bed below the baseboard. After a moment of strained silence, a delicate scratching disturbed the bedroom stillness, and I looked over the sheets until she materialized, that expressionless face studying my every shudder. Her ringlet curls poured onto the floor, and the deep red was just as beautiful as I remembered from high school. I always wanted that hair, but she'd laugh and tell me I couldn't have it. So, when I was 22... I took something else of hers instead. I married him, and on the day of the wedding, Audrey swallowed a bottle of pills to celebrate the occasion. I'm sorry, I whispered through the gloom, though I doubted she cared. Audrey used to wait weeks between visits, but now she came every night. She came because there was something she wanted. You can't have her. I pressed both hands to my abdomen willed Audrey away. But the phantom remained. She stared into me, never blinking, until the sunrise arrived and spirited her to whatever bleak domicile received her society each day. Don't leave me here. Daniel slung his overnight bag across his shoulders. Haley, someone has to make money, and this trip's been planned for months. Let me come with you. I advanced toward him. I don't feel safe alone. Have your mother come stay with you. I shook my head. I wouldn't let Audrey hurt anyone else I loved. He stood at the door, a hint of gut peeking out from his suit jacket. A year after we married, his former football muscles went slack, and fat moved into the place his strength used to live. Some days he was more like a charlatan imitating Daniel, But under the skylight that morning, the face belonged to the man I wed. I collapsed to the floor and wrapped my arms around his legs. You're the only thing that protects me. Get up, Kaylee, he said. You're acting like a child. But you're taking the car. I can't even drive anywhere. Call your parents. Call my parents if you need a ride. 
He lifted me to my feet. Baby, you're going to be fine. This pregnancy has made you crazy. I ran both hands across my face to dry the tears. You're right, I said. I'm sorry. Have a safe trip. Once Daniel was gone, the presence of Audrey filled his vacancy with glee. Although daylight temporarily tethered her, her soul demanded recompense at all hours, and I wanted to give it to her before she took something else. With the remote queasiness as my escort, I walked to the cemetery where she was buried. The modest grave was well manicured, giving no hint of its restless denizen. Her secrets waited elsewhere, in a little gray house nestled among the ranks of slumbering suburbia. What do you want? Audrey's mother grasped the edge of the front door, eager to seal me out, if I couldn't invent a reason for intruding. Hello, Mrs. Anderson. I gawked at the welcome mat. It was the same one from a decade earlier back when I was welcomed. I was hoping we could talk about Audrey. Glaring, she beckoned me inside. You're lucky my husband's at work. He wouldn't make it past the porch light if he was here. The distant aroma of cinnamon and roses that once permeated the home had long ago faded, and the stench of blue window cleaner and bleach erased any sense of comfort. I'm having iced tea, Mrs. Anderson shook her glass and led me into the den. I'd ask you if you wanted something, but I'd rather see you die of dehydration. I'm good anyhow, I said, and examined the sterile walls where the family portraits used to hang. There were no pictures of Audrey. The house blotted her from existence. The place looks different. Don't you judge me, Kaylee, she said, tightening her grip on the cup as though she planned to toss the contents into my face. I removed those photographs because I couldn't stand to see her smile frozen. I wasn't judging. I focused on the red grooves of the glass that now rested somberly in her hands. When was the last time you were here? Mrs. Anderson pursed her lips, and I knew she remembered without thinking about it. She waited, testing me to see if I could do the same. Audrey's graduation party. She smiled. That's right, she said. I took the nicest picture of you and Audrey and Daniel that afternoon. That was the last time you were all together. That was a good day, I said. Searching the altered room for a relic from my youth, I found my childhood on a shelf on the wall. It was a kitschy figure, no bigger than a soda can. When I was ten years old, I convinced Audrey to help me get it down. And, in our heist... The big-eyed porcelain child toppled to the floor and shattered to pieces. Audrey cried, even after I warned her tears would get us caught. But when Mrs. Anderson found us, she just shook her head and glued the thing back together. From where I sat, though, I could glimpse the damaged corner where the ceramic lost the smallest shard that she never did find. "'You were a louse of a child,' Mrs. Anderson said, as if intuiting my thoughts. You were spoiled and vain. But my daughter insisted I was wrong about you. So I figured you were a lesson she needed to learn. 
She sipped her iced tea as she collected her face. A face that, if not for the sorrow etched into every wrinkle, would look no different than it had during my heyday with Audrey. And she learned about you, all right. Put her six feet under, but she learned. Mrs. Anderson smiled a tight smirk. You always had a penchant for other girls' boyfriends. I wanted to tell her she was wrong, but I knew she wasn't. Audrey was the last in a line of childhood follies, mistakes for which an adult can never atone. A clock chimed four in the afternoon, and Mrs. Anderson sighed. So what do you want, Kaylee? I've been seeing her. In your nightmares? I shook my head. She visits me, I said. When Daniel's sleeping, she comes to the house, drags herself on the floor into the bedroom. Night terrors, Kaylee. That's the clinical name for it. Go to a doctor. They'll fix you up. There are marks on the floor where she's been. Mrs. Anderson laughed, and the single effervescent burst agitated the wounded figure on the shelf. (laughs) Then you need help. Serious psychiatric help. We sat in silence for several minutes. May I use your restroom? She waved her hand. You know where it is. Scurrying past the bathroom, I proceeded toward the door at the end of the hall. A light was lit within. Audrey's bedroom wasn't as expected. I figured either Mrs. Anderson converted the space like she did the rest of the house, or she preserved it as a kind of makeshift shrine, ready for Audrey if she ever came home. But it was an amalgam of both. The white daybed I had always envied remained intact, yet a new dresser and a bureau replaced the bookshelf in vanity. A couple of posters, shirtless centerfolds from trashy teen magazines, drooped from the walls. And even after more than a decade, the creases had never relaxed. But on the back of the door, yellowed tape was all that remained in the wake of forsaken decor. I tried to remember what poster Audrey had placed there, but my memory drifted away from me like deadwood in a black sea. I listened for my lost friend, and the house remembered for me. There, in her sanctuary, the echo of Audrey's candied voice fused with the eggshell white paint. The room cradled her murmurs from bygone sleepovers when she had leaned close to me, that warm breath whispering into my ear about Daniel. I love him, Kaylee. I really do. I'm going to marry him someday. My question was always the same. Can I be a bridesmaid? Of course you can, silly. You can be the maid of honor. But I don't want to be a maid. Together we'd giggle until someone hushed us. Then we'd laugh a little bit more. Mrs. Anderson nudged into the room and stood near me. I thought you'd be in here. I fixated on the empty daybed. Did she leave a note? My dear girl, jilted women always leave notes. Did she mention me? She did. May I read it? No, you may not. She stepped back and inspected me. I need you to leave now. Back at the welcome mat, I turned to Mrs. Anderson, my eyes wide and arms shaking, 
She wants my baby. She shrugged, one arm resting against the doorframe. It should be her child with Daniel, not yours. Please, I said. If you could forgive me, maybe Audrey can too. But I have no interest in exonerating you, Kaylee. If I had it my way, you'd die of guilt. This time, she did slam the door, abandoning me in the bare sunlight with nothing more than my memories of Audrey to accompany me home. Around nine, Daniel phoned to say goodnight. He talked about his day and how stressful conventions were and a list of business complaints that I neither understood nor cared to hear. Fatigued with talk of spreadsheets, I interrupted. Do you ever think about Audrey? It was the first time since she died we'd spoken her name between us. He hesitated. What made you remember her? I never forgot her. Kaylee, Daniel said, and in my mind I could see him tilt his head and flash me that half-smile I loved. She did what she did. It's not our fault. We fell in love, and I won't apologize for that. I nodded and hoped he could envision my response the same way I imagined his. We said I love you, and I bid him farewell. It was time to prepare for Audrey. An old turntable sat in the corner of our bedroom. I ran my hand across the lid and blew the film of dust from my skin. My fingers fumbled with the needle and managed to drop it at the outside edge of the record. As I rested on the bed, the light still on, I worried the couch might be a better place to wait. Audrey might not expect that. She might head into the bedroom out of habit. But if she started her evening treks in the living room, I would just meet her sooner on the couch. The melody of the flamenco guitar merged with the scratching along the hardwood. I sang, loud and out of tune, to drown out the sound of both. Don't look at the doorway, I thought. Don't watch for her. She's not there. Pretend she's not there. But the record ended, and the scratches continued. And on this evening, she crooned lyrics as well. Haley, Haley. The crystalline voice approached with a sing-song elegance. The turntable rotated, and the speakers emitted a blank din. I wanted to yank the cord from the wall and obliterate the noise, but Audrey appeared, faced the floor, and called my name again. Kaylee. I stared at her, but she moved toward me anyway. Perhaps I never stopped her at all. Perhaps it was always Daniel that kept her at bay, though he never knew she was there. Her gnarled fingers gripped the edge of the rug, and she breached the imaginary border I worked for years to defend. Audrey, please, I said. Please don't. I moved across the mattress to Daniel's side. Audrey shifted around the front of the bed to reach me. Her hands clawed at the comforter, and I eyed the door, wondering if I could make it down the hall before she could seize me. But she would return. She'd never stop. I'd earned this. Wrenching herself onto the bed, Audrey sat next to me. She smelled of faint floral, and her skin remained as perfect as it was in the senior picture her mother cast out. 
My bare feet dug into the sheet as I pushed against the headboard to escape her. With a graceful surge of her body, she leaned toward me, and I realized where the cinnamon and roses of her parents' house had gone. There was no decay on her, no sign of what she'd done to herself, no inkling of age, just a beautiful young girl perched near her friend. She pressed her lips to my ear, her soft breath warming my skin. Kaylee, I want to tell you something. Like her face, the voice remained unchanged, and on hearing it again, I suddenly remembered the missing poster in her room. It was an impressionist painting of Victorian ladies in a garden, my gift to her for her 22nd birthday. Her last birthday. Tears salting my cheeks. I wished I had listened in Sunday school and I could recite a prayer, any prayer. Audrey would remember one. The saccharine rhythm stirred the air. I only want to tell you what I've done. But Audrey... I closed my eyes as her red curls fell against my face. What have you done? You'll see soon. Just know it's for you, Kaylee. It's for you. I didn't move for hours. I feared if I opened my eyes, I would find her still sitting there. Outside, the cars whirred up and down the suburban street, and the newspaper ricocheted off the front door. The moment the heat of daylight streamed through the window, I phoned 911, and an ambulance took me to the county hospital. Run every test you can. I shed my clothes and climbed into the white gown. There's something wrong with my baby. Three hours and a litany of needles and tubes later, an ER nurse comforted me with a stiff, patronizing smile. Darling, there's nothing wrong. You have one healthy pregnancy. I nodded, the charts and sonograms mocking me from their roost on the wall. Do you need a ride home? I can walk, I said. As I crossed the parking lot, I called Daniel. An unfamiliar voice answered. Are you Daniel Cook's wife? Yes, I said. Who's this? Brain aneurysm is the nicer term for stroke. Nobody thinks a hardy man of 30 can die of a disease associated with the elderly. So doctors say, brain aneurysm, to help the family make sense of it. But I knew what killed Daniel. And it wasn't a tiny blood vessel giving way. Who found him? I crouched on the pavement and prodded a piece of gravel along the crack in the sidewalk. A co-worker, the voice said. How'd a co-worker get into his room? From the other end of the line, there was nothing but white noise. Did the co-worker happen to be female? I tucked my index finger against my thumb for leverage and flicked a piece of gravel into the air. Yes. Please keep the details to yourself, I said, but send my husband's body home. I'd like to bury him this week. I stayed with my parents while they made the preparations for Daniel. The next three days, all I could do was lie in my old bed and sob. Audrey never came to visit, and I imagined her in my house resting on my side of the mattress. She could wait for as long as she needed to finish me too.
Roses were the blossom of choice for the calling hours. And as I stood in my morning garb next to the coffin, I gagged at the scent. Can you send the flowers away? I covered my mouth. You're making me sick. My mother vanquished the remainders of Audrey, and I thanked her. Faces poured into the cramped room. Like an assembly line, the stream of bereaved kissed my cheeks and offered psalms of sympathy. I pretended I was someone else. A hand suddenly gripped mine, the fragile yet unearthly grace. I'm, I'm sorry about your loss, Kaylee, Mrs. Anderson said. Truly I am. I hadn't seen her enter through the foyer, and I wondered if she could materialize like her spectral daughter. I studied the features so like Audrey's. She embraced me, and my body collapsed into her arms. We remained together in the center of the room for a long time, not caring that we blocked others from the casket. Before she departed, Mrs. Anderson stuffed a small envelope into my hands. I brought you a copy of Audrey's note, she said. I don't know if it will help now or make things worse, but I think she would want you to read it. I pulled myself from the crowd and retired to an empty hallway near a vacant viewing room. The glue on the fresh envelope released its hold, and my fingers gripped the letter that had terrified me since my mother took me aside during my wedding reception and told me Audrey was gone. Clean black letters with buoyant curves covered the page, and I recognized the handwriting from the surreptitious notes we passed during study halls and recesses. My eyes closed as I amassed the nerve to read it. Then I inhaled and began. Dearest Daniel, you robbed me of my happiness. You robbed me of my life. You even robbed me of my best friend. I don't know what the next life holds, but in this moment before I'm about to meet the one who made me, I swear with all the life left in me that I won't let you hurt her like you hurt me. Yours, now and forever, Audrey. For the first time, I felt the baby kick. My hand fluttered to my stomach on instinct, and I lingered in the hallway of the funeral parlor and didn't move or speak for almost an hour. Guests waltzed past, their arms and shoulders and hair brushing against me as they offered condolences. But not until the overhead lights dimmed and my parents grasped my hands did I stir from my position. They asked if I wanted to stay with them for a while longer. I requested to go home. I sat awake every night for a week. Audrey never returned. Today's episode featured a story by Gwendolyn Keist, Audrey at Night. If you'd like more information on Gwendolyn and her work, please visit her website, GwendolynKeist.com. Keist is K-I-S-T-E. And follow her on Twitter at Gwendolyn Keist. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda. You can see more of Jeanette's work at HorrorMade.com. You can also interact with Jeanette on Twitter at HauntingTV or at Jeanette underscore art. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Carrie G.S. Lip for a great story last week and to John Towers for the kick-ass art. 
We are going to be off next week, first week of August, Inventory of the Library. But we may have something very special for you. We'll have more details if we can work that out. And we'll be back the following week with a great story by Vincent Asaro called Demon in the Wire. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, bonus stories, and more. You can sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. If you haven't heard, we're going to be giving away posters for Neil Gaiman's The Price, an animated short film based on the story of the same name. The Wicked Library will be featuring a dramatic reading of The Price by Neil Gaiman in August, along with short stories by yours truly and Nelson W. Piles. And we were just given permission this week by Owl Going Back to read one of his stories. Owl is a Bram Stoker award-winning author of numerous novels, children's books, screenplays, and short stories. And we are not talking about the Owl that is the arch nemesis of Max Booth III. This is actually Owl Going Back, a fantastic writer who writes some great scary stuff. And now, Gwendolyn Keist. So today we have Gwendolyn Keist, and we just listened to Audrey at Night, which was a fantastic little story. And I got to tell you, one of the things that drew me to the story in the very beginning was the title itself. A lot of times I think the title is just kind of like a little tease, a little bit of fun. But the title for this one kind of serves a bigger purpose, I think. Yeah, I I went back and forth. I remember because I wrote this about a year ago and I remember that was sort of a placeholder title. It was just like, okay, I'm going to just give this a title and I'll come back to it. But when I came back to it after writing the whole story, I I couldn't imagine it having any other title because it seemed like that that really summed up the entire story. It's all Kaylee could think about was Audrey coming every single night. So I ended up really liking it, though it was funny because at first I was like, I don't know, this seems almost too simple. Do I want it to be a little bit longer or more descriptive? But I, I'm i glad you liked it. I'm, I'm glad that it, it worked for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I understand what you're saying. You know, a lot of times when you're writing stuff, you have to give it a title just so that if for nothing else, you can save the document. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And a lot of times you come back at the end of the story and you go, you know what? Through the course of writing this, it now is this. Yeah. So how did the story reveal itself to you? Was it an image? Was it a line? I mean, a lot of times I think when we get ideas for stories, there's something that kind of drives that. Yeah. With this one, it was absolutely the image of her crawling across the floor. And and it really, I don't usually start with the first line. I wish I did. I think that that would be an easier way of writing sometimes. (laughs) But this one did. At the first, as soon as I saw that image, it, it absolutely started with that first line of her crawling across the floor because I just thought that seemed really, really scary to me that you would be laying in bed, which is, you know, you're kind of vulnerable to begin with and so then to have something in your house where you're supposed to be safe coming after you night after night that really unnerved me right away so that was a story I I knew I wanted to tell. Well one of the things that I've always found about short stories as compared to longer works is that pacing becomes very very important because you you don't want to go too fast but you don't want to go too slow there's kind of a balance there where you have to kind of get everything into the story that needs to belong there but you can't overpack it and you can't underpack it so i'm curious for you when you're writing short work how do you know that you've gotten the pacing for the story right 
Sometimes I don't think I can figure out if I've done, if the pacing is right until I'm editing. It seems like I'll feel that the pacing is going really well, and then I'll get to the editing process, and I'll feel like it's rushed in areas or too slow in other areas. So for me, I think it's just always going back and always editing a work and seeing, you know, is it dragging here? You know, is it going too fast? Do I need to, like you said, unpack it a little more? So I think, yeah, I think editing is the big thing for me. Do you mind editing or is it one of the things that you find to be a little bit arduous? I think it depends on the story. Some stories I love the editing process and I feel like all the magic happens there. And then other times I just want the story to be done. I'm like, okay, I really just want to be done with this one. I really want to get this editing done. So I think it depends on where I'm at with the story. Some stories... When I'm writing them, the first draft is, is misery for me, and then the editing is the fun part. And other times it's the exact opposite. I love the first draft. I think this is great. I'm so happy. And I get to the editing process. I'm like, wow, I don't like any of this now. So <laughs> I think it depends. Now, that's a really good point because I know that there are times when, just like everybody else, you have the good days and you have the bad days. Sometimes the story yeah. seems to come and it seems to It can even be the same story. I can write a story one day and I can set it aside. And three days later, I'm like, oh, I hate this. And then three days after that, I'm like, oh, okay, I see where I made a mistake. Yeah. It's absolutely. interesting how that works. The story becomes more well-rounded because you're coming to it almost as different people because some days you're in yeah. a bad mood. Some days you're in a good mood. Some days you're right. happy. Some days you're tired. So it's like, it's getting worked on by all these different people. It's almost yeah. like a collaboration with yourself. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. So do you find that to be the case for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think that if, like you said, it, depending on the emotion that you bring to it, I think you can you can imbue the work with those different emotions. And I can see when, when I go back and edit, I was like, oh, this was a really good day. And I was like, really, really happy with my writing this day. Or I can see on days when I wasn't as happy. I'm like, okay, does that fit the tone of the story? Because maybe it does, and maybe that works, or maybe I was a little too bitter that day. So maybe I need to tone that down a little bit. <laughs> Very cool. With horror fiction, it's scarier and scarier as you go along. The big part, I think, is planting the right clues in the right places so that whenever you get to the end, it's not like, well, where did that come from? But at the same time, you don't want to reveal too much. You have to kind of reveal them yeah. in a balanced way. Did you have difficulty doing that with this story or did it come pretty easily for you? I saw the whole story pretty quickly. I remember it only took me a couple of days to really have the whole story envisioned and, and mapped out. But... At the same time, I don't do a lot of twist endings, and this is sort of a twist ending out of anything I've ever written. I think this almost has that feel to it, so yeah. I, was re I wanted to be really careful about making sure that everything that you needed to know for that ending was there. And it was there, like you said, you don't want it to be too overt, because then everybody's going to know where it's going, but at the same time, you don't want it to be jarring, because then readers feel cheated, and rightfully. So it was a balance. It definitely was a balance of trying to say, okay, they are friends, and really... Looking at it so much through Kaylee's perspective so that you can you can see why she believes that this is going to be so bad. And, and it is ultimately bad, certainly, right. just not necessarily for her. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was definitely a balancing act. Whenever you're going through a story like this, it's almost like together you're building a puzzle. It's kind of like, you know, you're handing me as the reader a piece and I'm putting them together. Yeah. And at the end, you still have a few pieces left in your hand that you reveal and mm -hmm. if you've done your job well, I can look at the puzzle and go, oh, I see where those go. Yeah. If, you, if you do it poorly, it, like you said, you as the reader feel cheated. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's not really the piece that's supposed to go there. Yeah, exactly. What is your favorite thing about reading horror? I love the 
psychological aspects of it. I, I have a graduate degree in psychology, and, and it's funny because I don't work inside the psychology field at this point, but I'm constantly using it in my writing. So it, it's good. It, didn't, it was not a wasted uh, degree by any stretch. So I really like how all horror is going to affect somebody psychologically, and many, many horror films or horror stories that don't resonate with me, it's because you have no connection to the character. It doesn't... It doesn't seem to mean anything to them. And granted, fear is obviously almost always playing in there, but I think it's more interesting to see things greater than fear because we're more than just base-level emotions. So I think that's what I like to see is how it affects people. That's that's a very good answer. There's a, there's a lot of subtleties that at play there that kind of mix together to make it what it is. The gotcha things are fun, but at the same time... They are. Yeah. You get tired of that if that's all you're reading. It's it's fun to have that in there every once in a while, but something that has yeah. some substance and some subtlety and some other emotions mixed in with it definitely help out a lot. Yeah, definitely. I read a lot of Ray Bradbury. I love his <sighs> I love horror Ray more Bradbury. than I like his sci-fi, though I love his sci-fi too. Yeah. But I love the horror that he does because it's so much about how it's affecting the individual characters and it's so much through their eyes. And oftentimes children or, or young adults, which... I think that even adds a greater level of dread because when you're young, everything is horrible. It sometimes seems because you don't understand the world yet. So I love seeing things through the perspective of of, of his characters for for that reason. Yeah, Bradbury's a great one. You know, it's funny. In all the interviews that I've done so far, nobody has mentioned Bradbury. And, and now that I think about it, I'm kind of surprised because I mean, everybody talks about Stephen King and yeah. uh, Dean Koontz and everybody else. But uh, Bradbury's definitely up there. I as a science fiction writer. And mm-hmm. so I think a lot of times his horror almost gets lost in the shuffle. If I go into a bookstore and I can't find Bradbury, I'll ask him, like, well, where's Ray Bradbury? And I'm like, well, obviously in sci-fi. And I'm thinking, that's not obvious to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. But I think that that might be why a lot of people don't, don't mention Bradbury. They'll mention Bradbury about science fiction, but not as often as about, about horror. Yeah, and he's a great horror writer. I think so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, and you mentioned characters earlier. That's one of the things that's always fun about Bradbury is that he does have a lot of focus on the characters. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what horror story that you've read has kind of stuck with you the most? Still scares you, in other words. Still scares me. So many. I, uh, I love The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. I think that that one, that one is really, really great. And it's so about the psychology of that town, and that's terrifying to me. Yeah. And I love The Lake by Ray Bradbury. From, mm-hmm. I read it in the October Country. I love that one. Again, it's, it's so melancholy, but it's still really, really unsettling. Yeah. So, and I love a lot of Richard Matheson. I think Richard Matheson wrote some great stuff. I just, most of his stuff still very much freaks me out, no matter how many times I, I read it. So I yeah. love his horror. So. Well, you know, I haven't, I have to be honest, I haven't read Matheson, but I'm going to have to now because that's one of the things that I really like about a, a good story. It sticks with you and it, and it can still mean something to you on further rereads. Like there's certain authors where I'll read a story and I'm like, okay, that's fun, but I'm not in any rush to go back and read it again. Here's an interesting question for you. Maybe. We'll see. Which story or novel would you most want to write a prequel for if you could? Oh, probably We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I love Shirley Jackson, and I love the characters in that one. I love the Blackwood family, so I would probably go with that one. I, I, I love the magic realism of it, but how it also has this undercurrent of horror that it's just such a great combination of fantasy and horror. And really it's basically taking place in the real world, which is really great to me because 
to me, I think a lot of horror has to be supernatural, but it really doesn't. You can do a lot with horror even in our world. So oh, yeah. that's probably the one I would pick. What are some of the mistakes that you made when you first started writing that you've learned from since then? I probably used way too many L-Y adverbs. I still love L-Y adverbs a lot. <laughs> and when I just speak in conversation, I use them constantly. Mm-hmm. But I've learned, I, I've kind of come from that Hemingway philosophy of let's cut these down and see if, if the story still works. And yes, it almost always works better without all of them. So I would say that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I like that. What's the most helpful things that you've learned about writing? Keep editing. I think that's the main one. I've been writing most of my life. And when I first started, you know, when I was really young, still in elementary school or junior high, I was like, once I was done with the first draft, it was perfect. There was (laughs) nothing that needed change. It was the most perfect thing on earth. And obviously, that's never true of a first draft. You can always make it better, no matter how good it is. You can always make it better. So I think that's that's the big one. That's the big one. I would tell anybody who is wanting to become a writer, get used to editing. There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't mean that the work is horrible, the first draft. It just means you can make it better. Right. Although secretly, the first draft is probably horrible, but yes. I would never tell somebody that. <laughs> so I got to ask what projects you have coming up that uh, people can watch out for, your fans and listeners of the show can watch out for. One of the big I'm working on right now is a multi-author Halloween anthology. So that will be coming out this fall. It was a project I only decided to, of course, do this month, so I'm I'm pulling it together pretty quickly. But fortunately, I know a lot of horror writers and a lot of people who love Halloween, so it is coming together very quickly and very well. We just did the uh, photo shoot for the book cover yesterday, so we're we're definitely moving along with that. So I'm pretty excited about that. It is called A uh, Shadow of Autumn. That is the name of the anthology. So that's one of my big projects. And I have a lot of short stories coming out in the next six months. So excited about that as well. That's awesome. Yeah, Halloween's kind of like Christmas for uh, for fans of horror. Absolutely. My parents got married on Halloween, and they did it back in the 80s where, like, nobody was getting married uh, on Halloween. Now it's much more common, but back then, people, like, family members, I think, were kind of surprised by it. But so I always say I was, I, it's my birthright. Halloween and horror, <laughs> it's my birthright. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, how can uh, people find you and interact with you? I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and then I also have my website, GwendolynKeist.com. So those are usually where I'm at. That's probably the easiest way. So I'm on there a lot. I spend way too much time online, but (laughs) I think my writing might go to the wayside sometimes, but I can at least meet new people, so that's good. Right. Well, so that means that you, you are there to interact with your fans and readers, so that's a good thing. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking all the time and letting us read Audrey at night for everybody. Thank you. I really appreciate this. I really appreciate this is really fun. I, I love I love the site. I love the podcast. So I'm really, really excited and honored to be part of this. Audrey at Night by Gwendolyn Keist. Copyright Gwendolyn Keist. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written and performed by Anthony Rosick of Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod or Purple Planet Music and used with their permission. Check the show notes for links and titles. The Wicked Library is a Hicksunt Fabulous production. Hicksuntfabulous.com Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive Producer, Nelson W. Piles. 
Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 608. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. For all the good it'll do you.